marijuana, pot, grass, shake, bud, ganja, chronic, cannabis. Cannabis. Whatever term you use, less than 10 years ago, it was a product that was trafficked in the shadows. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey buddy. Hey, buddy. And today, in Oregon and many other states in the U.S., you get a receipt and a bag with your purchase. Thank you. Come again. I'm Travis Box, and I am fascinated by the complexities of what seems like a voter-approved gold rush happening in real time. Will we cultivate Oregon's greatest cash crop ever? Or will this great experiment and legalization go up in smoke? (coughs) Each episode, I'll sit down one-on-one with the major players in the Oregon cannabis industry. The activists. The medical professionals. The legislators. The economists. The regulators. The lobbyists. How did Oregon get to this place in history? And where does this budding billion-dollar industry go from here? You see what I did there? You're listening to Mainstream Weedia on the Coin Podcast Network. The city of Portland knew it would be one of the epicenters of the adult-use cannabis market once Oregon voters approved it in 2014. The city's Office of Community and Civic Life set up its own licensing and regulatory department not long after. Since that time, the office has incorporated an equity element to ensure that BIPOC and traditionally underrepresented communities or those negatively impacted by the war on drugs can participate in this new industry. On this episode, we'll introduce you to the City of Portland's Cannabis Program Manager, Dashita Dawson. You're listening to Mainstream Media. Hi, this is Jeff Giannola from Coin6 News, and I'd like to invite you to watch Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. It's our award-winning newscast one hour earlier at 10 o'clock. A full hour of the stories that are important to you and your family from the news team that's watching out for you. Plus, Portland's most accurate forecast certified by weather rate from Chief Meteorologist Natasha Stenbach. See why more people are switching to Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. Watching out for you. Welcome back to Mainstream Media. Dashita Dawson is the Cannabis Program Manager for the City of Portland's Office of Community and Civic Life. Dashita, what drew you to the cannabis industry? And then, what was your path to your current position with the City of Portland? That's a great question. First, I am first and foremost a cannabis patient. I got into the industry really due to early signs of MS and finding that cannabinoids uh, were the best treatment as compared to conventional medicine, which had been failing me for almost a decade prior. I've now been in the industry six years and I, I really transitioned in as a businesswoman primarily because I felt like I was a patient without dignity. I entered into the market in Arizona um, where it was a large medical cannabis market. And unfortunately at retail, the experience was subpar. As someone who had a background in science and in business, I felt that we could do just a better job representing the plant's benefits as well as real science as opposed to bro science in the marketing and communication. But also I had a strong background in supply chain management and overall general management for consumer products. And that is essentially what we're building from the ground up in the industry. So I transitioned out of necessity to try to you know get the industry to be much better than what it was offering when I entered as a patient. I spent about three, three and a half years as a strategy and 
and management consultant. And I worked with a number of municipalities across the country and even overseas as they looked at how they were going to be regulating and building new markets in their jurisdictions. I worked with a number of Native American tribes. And eventually that landed me on a few subcommittees for uh, regulatory bodies, including the Oregon Cannabis Commission, which at the time was led by Dr. Rachel Knox. Uh, she was actually the only doctor, medical doctor in the country to be a chair of such of a commission. And so I joined um, our selected rather for the framework, government frameworking subcommittee. It's since, you know, transformed multiple times, but while working on that subcommittee, I saw that there was an opening in the city of Portland for this leadership role. And I put my name in the hat. And during COVID, at some point, I, I learned that I was in contention and, and went through the process and was ultimately selected. How long have you been the program's manager? I'm going into my um, two years now. Wow. I, I've been enrolled for uh, since May of 2020. When was the program formed and how did it begin here in the city of Portland? Well, you know, as with most states that are legalizing, Oregon started with the medical. But in 2014, there was a campaign to legalize and ultimately by legalizing at the state level, local jurisdictions had the ability to, you know, launch their own programs. And so the city of Portland's cannabis program was officially launched in 2015. And it is a dual licensing program, meaning that you can get your license in the city of Portland, but for it to be active, you must also have a state license. And the mission really behind the program was around sensible regulation. And I, I can attest to that. I actually testified on the East Coast as a consultant saying, hey, Oregon and the city of Portland had very sensible regulation, a low barrier of entry, and in doing so had made a much more equitable approach to legalization as compared to West Coast counterparts. And, uh, and then some ways that makes the city of Portland unique. And then in 2016, something really fantastic happened in that the city voted in a ballot measure to make the local tax revenue of 3% be allocated in a way that would go to communities most harmed and or uh, small businesses and those historically disadvantaged groups within the city of Portland. And Portland was the first city to do something like that. How many other municipalities around the country have followed suit? It's actually more so state level. In fact, again, uh, you know, I, I always like to call out the work that how we do it is an inside outside game. But before I became a regulator, I talked about this statute in New York and New York's legalization bill. 40% of the cannabis tax revenue at the state level is designated for similar allocation and investment. Well, that'll be a tremendous sum of money. So, what was the cannabis program's mission when it was first launched? And then how has it evolved until now? So the mission really, like I said, started off very simply wanting to have sensible regulation. I find the office naturally is way more facilitative as opposed to other regulatory cannabis offices are more enforcement oriented. We did start off, though, with a larger percentage of our staff being compliance officers, and that has since shifted to be a little bit more balanced, where we now have a licensing and compliance portion of the office, but we also have a social equity and educational development portion of the office. It's definitely a more balanced equity-centered framework as opposed to where we started. Again, the office started based on what previous uh, medical markets had looked like. And I think we have a lot of war on drugs mentality to still overcome and undo. And oftentimes it starts with penalizing and enforcing as opposed to, I mean, in, in all honesty, we should be 
facilitating and supporting licenses. And I think our office does it naturally. And now it's in the embedded in the framework of our operational strategy. Was there always an emphasis on equity with the program? Or was it the vote on the tax revenue that allowed the office to pivot? I think the vote definitely was the catalyst. Most people, when you're starting a new regulatory office, it's like, well, what else do we have that does this? Because let's be honest, government generally is not the most functional. And I say that being relatively new to government, but having a successful career in private sector, there's a lot of you know slow and dysfunctional processes that we have to overcome within the government bureaucracy. And so I think we wanted probably to keep it simple. And I think we had a very low cost um, barrier compared to, again, other markets um, and a relatively easy application process, but no thought had been put into the, the equity conversation yet. And in fact, that was not unusual for any of these mature markets. Colorado just passed its equity designation in a bill in 2020. And, you know, it's obviously the oldest market. So, it, you know, Oregon was, you know, not necessarily leading in that, but then Portland comes in in 2016 and gives us this runway to say, hey, we can do and show what community investment looks like out of cannabis tax revenue. And it started small because there wasn't a real defined strategy around it. But I definitely commend the people that were running the grant programs before I got in for at least having a vision. And then when I came in in 2020, we really branded it around social equity and educational development or seed initiatives because it wasn't visible enough and we weren't getting an ongoing allocation. Once we got an ongoing allocation, it meant that we could put more programmatic strategy around it. And we did so. So, yeah, I would, to answer your question shortly, no, there wasn't an equity conversation happening in the beginning. It wasn't happening anywhere um, except maybe in Oakland and in Los Angeles, but no, nowhere else. And now, you know, I think 2016 really set city of Portland apart, even leapfrog in California on the cannabis tax revenue reinvestment into community. And now seed initiatives gives it a good brand so it can have some national recognition. For people who don't know, what exactly are the different areas the cannabis program is responsible for? Sure. In my role, I oversee a team currently of eight. We probably should be closer to about 20. This is being honest, like just based on uh, comparison analysis to other markets, based on our revenue and how many licenses we manage, as well as compared to the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission, OLCC, at the state level and their size. So we, we have a mighty team of eight uh, that, that report into me and we handle licensing, so all the applications that we receive, compliance once you are licensed, and renewals, as well as education and equity initiatives. We also help administer the Cannabis Policy Oversight Team, or CPOT, which is an official city advisory body that is appointed by the director of the Office of Community and Civic Life. And it consists of community members, industry leaders that are helping to guide our bureau and city council in the right way related to policy. Um, They publish an annual report, which our program helps to support as well. It's a pretty wide range of things that we cover, but our core competency, like any other regulatory offices, we license businesses and we keep them in compliance based on the statute. Currently, how does the program promote equity in the cannabis industry here in Portland? And why is it such an important part of this mission? 
It's a meaty question and it's also part of my personal mission. The reality is that, you know, this is a new industry with new revenue implications for jurisdictions at the local, state, and federal level, even now without federal legalization. And while that's happening, there are millions of people that are still dealing with the collateral consequences of cannabis criminalization, which has primarily been over the last 50 years, a racially biased and enforcement of criminalization. Our data is very clear. We've got a number of ACLU reports that talk to the racial disparities in arrests. And while uh, the legalization hasn't removed some of the racial disparities in law enforcement, it has removed a tool that has been used to really enforce systemic racism and, 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 and infuse it in ways that uh, we, we were actually very surprised to find when we think about it from a lay person's perspective. Sometimes people think, okay, you did your time, you're out, but having a felony on your record prevents you from participating in all aspects of, many aspects, I should say, of society that we all take advantage of from student loans to housing, jobs. And these are things that the city is working to help rectify. And to me, recognizing cannabis legalization has ability to reverse some of that means that we at the regulatory office need to be talking about the history of criminalization, the impact of legalization on our revenue coffers, and what we can do to get a return on equity investment with those revenues. And so, you know, that's why we do it. And, and, and ultimately, that's what we contribute to, not just within the city, but at the state level. We've participated on multiple work groups driving bills to completion. This year, we were able to participate and support the Equity Investment Fund, which did pass and is now awaiting uh, governor's signature. I think that was Senate Bill 1579. And last year, we, we put forth a bill to try to drive more equity in our licensing process, but unfortunately it didn't pass, but we expect to bring that back. So we, while we're doing the licensing and what we can do on the regulation, we support educating people about the inequities. We support ensuring that where we can provide some equity center designation of our monies from the revenue, we do do that. But we also ensure that we are lobbying at the state level for the right thing and being a part of federal conversations to show what efforts we've made at the local level that should be included at the federal level. I've talked to many people who say one of the biggest barriers to the industry is the lingering stigma about the plant and how it continues to be a barrier to the growth of this industry. There's a segment of the population that still has this outdated, preconceived notion about the plant and the people that consume it and grow it and sell it. And I would think that part of the work you're doing with the program also helps to address that. 1,000%. I actually was really shocked um, because on the East Coast, we call Portland, Potland. I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. And I think there's a lot of misinformation even around the culture. But as soon as I arrived in this position, I, I was met with a lot of canophobia, is what I call it, throughout the state, whereby a law has been passed, but not a lot has been done to bring decision makers into a more competent state around the reality of cannabis. Not that only it is legal, but cannabis is medicine first and foremost. It's inherently medicinal. And no matter whether we call it adult use or medical use, it is, it's inherently that. And we can't change that. No law can. Only the consumer can dictate the end use at the end of the day. And what I thought was, you know, one of the biggest barriers we are seeing from people supporting the cannabis industry is mostly that they themselves are like, well, I'm not a user. And 
you may or might not be, but what you can support, and it was clear in the voter initiative based on how it passed, is that Portland really does support providing the repair and restoration to the communities that have been most harmed from, from criminalization, and the cannabis tax revenue can at least do that. And so if you support that, you have to support the industry because the revenue, the tax revenue comes from a thriving industry. And so that's really, to me, the cycle we want to perpetuate and, and show people that if they support social justice within cannabis and equity-driven activity, they are, in fact, also just supporting the greater ecosystem of the industry. As a medicinal consumer, as an advocate, as a cannabis strategist and consultant, as someone who has seen other markets come online and who's worked with other markets to bring them online... What do you feel Oregon has done well since voters passed Measure 91? I think Oregon has uh, resisted the to this point, because, you know, some things are changing politically. But to this point, Oregon has resisted the urge to cap the program itself. By that meaning, put this, you know, artificial number and create an artificial supply issue, potentially, which other markets have done. The, the caps itself have caused so many large markets to really, you know, shoot themselves in the foot before they even out, you know, out of the gate. Illinois is a perfect example. Even as we uh, see new markets on the East Coast open, They've all, at least within the statute, given the regulatory office the opportunity or the flexibility to be able to say what the number is and change it. And, you know, that way it isn't capped. We've seen uh, monopolies formed, oligopolies formed from the way the other licensing structures have been. I also think Oregon Out the Gate did a good job in, in, you know, providing multiple license types. And um, that wasn't necessarily the case in other markets. It was pretty vertically integrated or at least the expectation that people would have to do so much more than what we see in the mainstream world of consumer product goods. Nobody goes to a P&G store to buy Tide or Bounty. You know what I mean? We go to a retail store and it is, a, you know, there is a supply chain and it's optimized throughout. It doesn't mean that Target's not making, that's where I used to work. It doesn't mean they're not making their own stuff, but they know they can't really supply the whole market. And they also know that there's a lot of hyper-segmentation that needs to be addressed and that only happens with more competition and more people and more brands. So I think in that way, Oregon has done a really great job. I also, as a consumer, have consumed cannabis flower throughout the country and other countries as well. And I still say Oregon has the best flower, hemp or marijuana, that I have ever consumed. And so I'm real bullish about that for sure. And even some of the newer delivery mechanisms, the first time I tried a transdermal patch, some lingual strips, inhale were all in the Oregon market. So I think product diversity is fantastic and pricing is actually very, very reasonable. I mean, these are the things that, again, at Target, Victoria's Secret, those are my previous companies, product pricing, promotion, that's the brands. Those are really driving your market. And Oregon is allowed for that in a way from just, again, sensible regulations. Now that other jurisdictions are figuring out or brands are figuring out their way around those regulations, 
brands to be more promotional or to have more product diversity. I think Oregon is going to have to step up even more. And I see that now we have this, you know, new bill that passed with a moratorium on all licenses to really, I think, give OLCC ability to kind of maybe revamp the framework. I'm hoping, but we still don't really know. But what I will say is that I don't want us to fall behind while other states are finally starting to figure out the things that Oregon already had in place five years ago. And that leads to the other question. What do you feel is the biggest challenge here in Oregon that still needs addressing? I think there's still a lot of issues around the fact that, again, we opened an adult use market, but completely dwarfed the medical market. Again, I I have my own thoughts about it, but um, people often try to compare the cannabis industry to alcohol, which is you know a a reasonable benchmark. Don't don't get me wrong, I I see that, but I often look at my previous experience as a patient to help people understand a little bit more about how the consumer mindset is when shopping. I traded in Advil for my cannabis, and when I bought Advil, which is a brand of ibuprofen, I could either go to at shelf and buy a brand and it's have its own experience and, and 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 administer it myself or I could go through my insurance and um, pay a smaller copay and, you know, get a pharmacist to give me a higher milligram experience. I know unbranded. I know that a lot of people find it difficult to realize that that is in some ways a little bit better of a benchmark on how cannabis is being used. But our data shows that even in the adult use markets across the country, the top three reasons why people are shopping are still medicinal is sleep, pain, and anxiety. And if you're thinking about that, then you should probably develop your market with that in mind, which I think means Oregon needs to look again at how its medical market is currently set up a medical program. And that's a lot of what I've been doing with the Oregon Cannabis Commission and sort of saying, how do we fix this? Because I think it's less than 1% of Oregonians have a card that should have a card, meaning they already have the ailments that are qualified for the card. Do you believe we're on the verge of federal reform and What does that mean for the Office of Community and Civic Life's cannabis program? I believe we're on the verge if verge is three to five years from now. You know, we ask this question every year. We are about to look at another more act. And I say another, I think it's the third iteration in the House on the federal level. Last year, it had a historic vote to pass. Right now, based on the politics, I just don't see a bill passing through Senate. We do have some opportunity to maybe amend the Safe Banking Act to try to give a little bit of relief. However, I still feel in my conversations with federal legislators, as well as agency leaders that would be the agencies that presumably would regulate, there's still a lack of cannabis competency on understanding it the science behind it and, you know, and also the social justice. I think if you don't understand the science and the social justice, it's hard to see me feeling comfortable with you regulating it. You know, right now, I feel like most of the work that I've been doing at the national level is education and trying to get people up to speed as quickly as possible. But in the meantime, I feel really strongly that local uh, municipalities, state, we should be doing as much as we can to have proof of concept because that's what the federal government wants to hear. They want to hear where else has this been done? What can we replicate? It move a lot faster if we stop waiting for federal and we do what we can under the guidelines that we have, which is actually quite a lot, and use those as proof of concept to help push the federal government in the right direction faster. Where does the Portland cannabis industry go from here? And how might that change the mission for your program? 
Well, this is why I love having a cannabis policy oversight team. The annual report is a really good guide for us. So they just published their 2021 cannabis policy report, which gives 2022 recommendations. And number one thing, which is actually a bill that also passed at the state level, is we need data. I'm shocked often, of course, because I come from, again, big consumer products. IRI and Nielsen, that's the data that we're getting in and it's helping us shape categories. And this is no different. And so the city of Portland is really, really focused on developing a research program, but starting first with doing an economic viability study. Uh, We really don't know enough. We have a lot of conjecture and I appreciate the work of economists that are attempting to figure out what our future looks like. But if I'm being frank, it hasn't been a good forecast. If I forecasted this way at Target, I would have been fired. We, We can do a better job. And I think part of it is that we're not digging into the resources. At the state level, we get some data, but it isn't at a city level. And I think that that is what we can lead on as about 40% of the total Oregon market. I think that it would be really smart for the state to know what's going on specifically in the city of Portland, just in terms of just uh, portfolio management. But I don't have a problem helping to you know give them that information and, and starting from our jurisdiction. And so we'll be focused a lot there because that will determine how big we get the program, what other education and technical assistance that we can provide to improve on the program. So data collection is a real big one. The second is we've been manual for this entire time. Anyone, and I'm sure Jesse could share, anyone who's submitted a license application, did so on a paper application, and we manually processed everything. And while we do email, we're really excited to be rolling out a finally an online technology solution, which is right now scheduled to launch on 420. And it will allow us to have a lot more automation ability for licensees and applicants to manage their accounts and, and not have so much back and forth in the email and overall improve productivity there. I think that that's long overdue as well. It'll save us time and it'll save licensees money. I'd like to talk a little bit about how the office was involved in the $1.3 million cannabis emergency relief fund. Those funds go to help cannabis businesses that were affected by the pandemic, the wildfires, continued robberies. Tell us a little bit about how that started. Sure. Uh, So we are responsible for the Cannabis Emergency Relief Fund, or SURF. It started almost 16 months ago, so very early in my role, obviously because COVID was happening, but emergency relief was not happening for the cannabis industry. And the CPOT actually wrote a number of letters to the city council and then came before council with some testimony along with the Oregon Cannabis Association. And from there, we launched an idea around giving emergency relief fund from cannabis tax revenue. Went to city council to pitch the idea and got that approved. But we also knew that we couldn't get it out fast enough if we did it. Because again, government can be extremely unproductive sometimes just because of the layers of bureaucracy and checks and balances. And what we were able to do was build an umbrella grant mirrored after the Oregon Workers Relief Fund, where we partnered with three community partners, New Project, Oregon Cannabis Association, and the initiative to be able to actually administer directly to small licensed cannabis businesses and in workers within the industry. Yeah, we, we actually just ran up that hill and finally got to the point where we were able to launch the application in February. And I believe decisions are just being made on like disbursement out to the actual businesses. But we're looking at businesses that really 
really struggled through 2020 and 2021 that are owned by historically excluded groups, um, Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and other people of color, women, veteran, LGBTQ, and disabled businesses that are under $2 million in their annual revenue. Those are the type of businesses that we help to resolve. And many of them robbed multiple times. Many of them had to lay off their entire staff and then bring them back on when they were declared essential, creating more costs, but never being able to catch up and still operating at deficit and hoping to, you know, get relief to be able to keep their doors open. And one of the reasons that this exists is these businesses, due to the fact that the plant is still a federally Schedule One controlled substance, they don't have access to the Small Business Administration. They don't have access to any federal relief that other non-cannabis businesses had during this entire ordeal. So this relief fund was a life-saving program for these businesses. 1,000% and also a first time in the country. No other jurisdiction has allocated emergency relief for cannabis companies. This is a story that we've heard across all jurisdictions, even hemp companies, albeit federally legal, still struggled with the SBA and getting approval. So we are happy to be a benchmark for other jurisdictions and to roll this out. And we've actually gone before uh, city council to ask for another half a million because our request outweighed the you know, total 1.33 that was allocated. Is there anything specific about the program you want to make sure that the listeners know? I think I said already that we are doing everything we can to upgrade our technology. And so definitely look out because emails are coming around that launch. And if you're a licensed business and there there are almost 400 licenses in the city, you will be able to manage your account online and save a lot of time and potential confusion. So very proud about that. If you were not able to get into the surf program applications before we pause. Again, we are really pressing on city council to add more funding out of the cannabis tax revenue. So we, again, want people to support continued funding, ongoing funding for emergency relief. It's the fiscally responsible thing to do if we want these businesses to keep supplying the tax revenue that we use. I think that's it. I feel like you've asked some really great questions. And and truth be told, we're at that point right now where we're just getting our stride with some of the changes that we did make when I first started. And so I'm always also interested in getting additional feedback. And so we have our cannabis policy oversight team meetings or sessions twice a month. They're on Thursdays. They start at 6 p.m. And those are open to public. And it it gives us a great opportunity and the oversight team a great opportunity to hear from the public concerns and or additional uh, information that allows us to, you know, obviously provide the best recommendations around policy. Lastly, we are looking for CPOP members. We are recruiting and that requisition is up on the city of Portland's website or government jobs website. It's a volunteer government official position as an advisory body member, but it is very much one that's intended to change a lot of what's happened in the city of Portland and has already changed the minds of council and help us move in the right direction. If people want to learn more about the Office of Community and Civic Life cannabis program, where can they go? They can go to our website, which is the portland.gov backslash cannabis. I honestly also, you can Google Portland Cannabis. It comes up. You can Google Portland Seed. It comes up. We've done a good job trying to keep our SEO 
did real well. Um, even Google and Deshita Dawson, it will come up as far as City Portland. But we have our own webpage. And you can also email us at cannabis at portlandoregon.gov. I know how important the program is to the city of Portland and kudos for being a trailblazer on quite a few of the newer initiatives and setting a standard for the rest of the country to look as an example of what's possible. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Jax. Dashita Dawson, manager of the city of Portland's Office of Community and Civic Life's Cannabis Program. Mainstream media. In the early days of this podcast, we interviewed cannabis economist Bo Whitney. And back then we talked exclusively about the medicinal and adult use cannabis economy. But he made a comment that cannabis is sexy, but hemp is transformative. On our next two-part episode, Bo comes back to talk about how industrial hemp could change the world if only we could get out of our own way. This is Mainstream Weedia on The Coin Podcast Network.